If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. This is uh, the 20th week in our study through the book of Acts. We're keeping the smaller stories in, in light of looking at them in light of the big story, God's uh, redemptive plan through His, pers- through His Son, Jesus Christ. And um, we're, we're trying to keep the text in the context as uh, we go along. You know, for many of us over the last few weeks that we've uh, had the occasion to drop off our almost grown uh, children at college and help them get moved in and situated and then leave them there, return home either by car or by plane. And, and if this is the first time you've ever done this, if it's your oldest child, this is going to be a very difficult thing. It's hard enough as it is, but the first time it's uh, very, very painful. In fact, we, we, we have one of our elders who, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but he still can't talk about dropping off his daughter at Auburn, I guess that gives it away, kind of, but uh, without crying. And when he talks about it, he still gets, he gets, gets teary-eyed about it. It's hard for him to think about it. And this is a difficult challenge. In fact, saying goodbye is a difficult thing in, in really any context. When I graduated from college in Ohio and got my first, quote, real job in Charlotte, North Carolina, I loaded up uh, what I had, my Plymouth Sundance, and uh, drove off to the 10 hours. And my mom she would only stay out. She only stayed outside to say goodbye for a matter of seconds, and then she quickly turned around, went, went back inside. It was too much for her to watch her firstborn uh, drive away and establish a new home some ten hours uh, away. Uh, we've all had the occasion to say goodbye to someone that we love, and sometimes we, it's someone who's moved to another city for a, jo- a job transfer or a relocation or to go to school or whatever it is. And this is hard. One family uh, in our church, in fact, just this week, drove out to Hollywood, California, uh, where they're dropping off their son and helping him get situated in his place and then returning home. These are, these are common experiences uh, that we all have endured. And then there are, are what Pastor Tony Morita calls gospel goodbyes. These are no less painful, but these are intentional departures done so for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. I'm talking about uh, sending out people that we know and love as part of our churches to plant a new church in an area somewhere near here, perhaps. I'm talking about sending someone off to the mission field to work in the area of vocational missions like a family in our church did. They just said goodbye to their daughter last week and as she returned to the Middle East. Uh, I'm talking about a person who, makes a, who goes to serve a church somewhere vocationally, maybe making a ministry change. These gospel good li- goodbyes are no less painful, um, but they are part of what it means to, to see God's kingdom advance. Uh, today we're going to read about the heart-wrenching gospel goodbye that the Apostle Paul shared with the Ephesian elders. There was much weeping on the part of all, we're told, at the end of Acts 20. But it was necessary so that the gospel could get out and the good news about Jesus could be spread. So in Acts 20, we follow along with Paul in his journey all over the Greco-Roman world. He's been traveling around from town to town, city to city, uh, planting churches, sharing his faith, um, encouraging believers that he has uh, seen before and been a part of. But he does all of that compelled by the Holy Spirit and motivated by the grace of God. So compelled by the Holy Spirit and motivated by the grace of God. God's grace will be a central theme in this chapter, Acts chapter 20. It is again both Paul's motivation and his message. And so we're going to see three things this morning. 
We're going to see the location of grace, where it's found, the content of grace, what it is, and the insurance of grace, how God guarantees that His church will never lose it. So let's look at the text together, Acts chapter 20. I'll start by reading verses 1 through 6. Here reads the word of the Lord. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So we have a bit of a travelogue of the Apostle Paul showing just how much he's been focused on encouraging believers in various uh, cities and regions, um, believers really in churches that he helped to plant. And when we read this section, it may seem like this is kind of a quick uh, trip through these cities a very, at a very brisk, pa- uh, brisk pace, but it probably took Paul a year and a half or so to make the journey that I just uh, read about. In fact, it was while Paul was in Macedonia and Greece that he most likely wrote the book that we have known as 2 Corinthians and uh, the book of Romans that our ladies will be studying, two books in the New Testament. He stayed for a while in some of those places, three months in one. He'd stay for five days, a week in others. Um, Wherever he goes, though, he experiences the persecution, uh, mostly by the religious folks, and he also sees gospel fruit and the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Now, one other thing to note, sometimes when we think about the Apostle Paul, we, we tend to think of him as this kind of lone ranger, Um, forging ahead by himself without anyone beside him. But that's not the case. There were actually very few occasions that Paul traveled alone. He typically had his companions, his friends, genuine and trusted gospel partners who helped him, who traveled with him, who helped him plant churches. And these friends sometimes were actually the fruit of his labors. These were new converts who would profess faith in Christ and then they would follow uh, Paul along. Here we have at least seven people mentioned, men mostly of Greek origin. These are, some of these are brand new converts to the Christian faith. And then, as I mentioned, we have Luke, the author, uh, including himself in the people. This is the first time this chapter that we see you, Luke using a first-person plural, we or us. He says in verses 6 and 7, we. Uh, so this we likely includes Luke, Paul, and then for part of the way, Titus. These friendships were critical for the Apostle Paul. These relationships were life-giving. They were essential to him. This is why in the letters that Paul writes, he often begins by thanking those who have journeyed along with him. He reiterates his love for them, his appreciation for them in their partnership in the gospel. And in this book of Acts, we we see how important they are. This, This chapter is actually bracketed off by expressions of Paul's deep love for his brothers in Christ. He couldn't do what he did 
without his brothers and sisters in Christ. I had the great privilege a few months ago of talking with, I guess I could say one of my heroes in the faith, uh, Sinclair Ferguson. Ferguson now lives in Scotland, but he's influenced preachers and teachers all over the world in uh, dozens of countries, and um, he's been doing so for 45 years. He's, so he's 73 years old now and, and, and has and said to me, had no plans of slowing down in terms of ministering to, uh, to pastors and helping and encouraging folks where they are. And, um, been doing it again for four and a half decades. So I asked him, I said, well, what, what, is, like, what's the, what is it that sustained you for so many decades of ministry? What is it that continues to drive you and give you energy to do the things you're doing? He didn't even think about it. It didn't take him a second to think. And he said in his Scottish brogue, which I'm not going to try to replicate, but he said it was the fellowship of the brethren. That's what he said. The fellowship of the brethren. This is how, he said, I have been able to endure. Now, of course, he's not taking away the work of the Holy Spirit. He's not minimizing uh, the, the, the power of the gospel in his life. But he's saying it was the fellowship of the brethren that has allowed me to continue for 45 years, traveling in 50-plus countries, encouraging people all over the world. Those friendships characterized, he said, by honesty and intimacy and transparency and mutual respect and love, they are what sustained him. And, and so was the case with the Apostle Paul. There's a reason that Paul mentions all of these names and continues to express his gratitude for those relationships. There's a reason that at the end of this chapter, we're going to see in a moment that, that Paul and his fellow elders at, at Ephesus, they will weep bitterly over his departure as he leaves his friends what he believes to be for good. So this, all this really answers the question, really kind of where grace is found. And this is our first point this morning. The grace of God is found perhaps most concretely in the company of Christian friends. Now, make no mistake, there are a thousand places that we we experience God's grace. There are a thousand places where we find God's grace, or better yet, where God's grace finds us. It is as we sing. It's there in the cry of a newborn child and the weeping by the graveside. It's there on the mountaintop. It's there in those spiritual valleys. It's there in the everyday and the mundane. God's grace finds us everywhere and through a variety of means. But there is a demonstration of grace it's why this chapter, I believe, is bracketed off the way that it does. It is. It has so many mentions of these fellow travelers. There's a demonstration of grace that we experience in those deepest friendships. And we're not going to have these, friend, these types of friendships with everyone. But in these deepest friendships that cannot be imitated or duplicated, frankly, anywhere else. This is why Peter, Paul's friend and sometimes interlocutor, would say in his first letter, that as believers, we are stewards of God's varied grace. We are channels, believers, friends, spiritual friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are stewards. We are channels of God's various types of grace. God pours out His grace through those real, authentic, sacrificial, self-giving relationships. That's where we often find encouragement. That's where we often find acceptance. That's where we find this unconditional love that just that buoys us, that enables us to, to, to carry on when things get hard. That's where we find we actually experience the love of God through those friendships. 
We were actually wired for these types of relationships. So we're going to see, and I think it's week four of Capshaw Academy. I, the syllabus is done, and I've, I've given it to a few folks. But I think in chapter four, when we talk about this, that we, there we'll talk about the Trinity and the fact that, that we're wired for these relationships um, because we are image bearers of the triune God who is himself forever relational, forever existing as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we, as image bearers of God, the triune God, need relationships. But in order to have those deep and meaningful relationships, it requires relational pursuit, pursuing one another, being vulnerable with one another, being open and transparent with one another, which is hard, of course. So often we prefer to let everything come to us, friendships and relationships. But as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, Paul was masterful at pursuing people, listening to them, connecting with them according to what mattered to them, and then sharing with them his life and doctrine. And apparently... Sometimes when he was sharing his life and doctrine, sometimes when he was preaching, he would go just a little bit too long. Look at verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at a window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, I love the way Luke describes this, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I'm not going to tell you what sort of grammatical device that is since you already know. Um, But not long after Jesus' resurrection, uh, which took place, of course, on the first day of the week, for the early Christians, the emphasis on the Sabbath was slowly replaced by the emphasis on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. There was something essential about the gatherings on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, It wasn't the only time that believers got together, not by a long shot. They met all the time, but assembling together on the Lord's Day was such a critical part of their lives. And the preaching of God's Word and the breaking of bread, having a meal together, those were central to those gatherings. Well, on this night, according to Acts chapter 20, after celebrating the Lord's table together, Paul preached. But he didn't get started until midnight. And because the lamps, of course, they didn't have lamps that you would turn on or flick a switch. The lamps were actually torches, which burned, consumed a lot of oxygen. And because there were so many people in the room consuming a lot of oxygen, there was a young guy by the name of Eutychus who decided to sit on the windowsill in order to get some fresh air so he could breathe better. But he starts to have a hard time staying awake. Eventually, he falls asleep, crashes three stories down, and dies. Now, when I read that, it made me think for a minute about my own ministry. Um, In 20 years of preaching, I've had people fall asleep, plenty of them. Uh, I've had people pass out uh, for a variety of reasons. They were all uh, resuscitated by God's grace. 
Um, I had one lady uh, projectile vomit from the second row. This was actually on Easter. Um, 1,500 people packed together, and she actually projectile vomited on my wife's white pants. So it made it even more, uh, you can ask Janine about it. Actually, please don't. I think she's forgotten it at this point, but it was a horrible, horrible thing. And then I, I had to preach uh, on the course of the resurrection while there's so much stirring and cleaning. I mean, it, was, it was a horrible thing. But I've had that happen. Um, I've had people storm out in anger. I had one guy, actually, who came up at the end of a sermon, shook my hand, and said, looked at me just straight in the eye and said, I wish you were dead. He wasn't joking. He was serious. And that's a hard one to respond to. I'm not really sure how to answer that or how to respond to that. So I've had all kinds of responses, but I've never had anyone die while I was preaching. So I read that. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Uh, This is what happens as Paul is preaching. And I love the way Luke describes the scene. He says that even though it was after midnight and people were getting drowsy, Paul preached, quote, still longer, verse 9. You can sense the frustration. It's like, Paul, will you land the plane already? You, you know, you've said your three points. Will you please just end this sermon? We're dying over here. So Luke says they preached, he preached still longer, so long that Eutychus fell asleep, fell out of a window, and died. But Paul, like some of the prophets of old, bent over, took the guy in his arms, and raised him from the dead. Now, what are we to learn from this story? Is it don't fall asleep in church or you may die? Uh, I wish I could say that was one of the points, but that's not one of them, I don't think. Is it some people would rather fall out of a building than listen to an overlong sermon? There's maybe some truth to that. I doubt that's, that's what we're to learn there. Is this a challenge to preachers to be more interesting? Probably not. Um, I think this is Luke's way of showing us that God, by His Spirit, continued to confirm the ministry of the apostles in miraculous ways, affirming the ministry of the apostles, the power of the gospel, So Paul brings a guy back to life, and after the tragedy was averted, Paul, Luke, and his fellow companions set sail for Asos and on to Mytilene. Then they pass over Chios from there to uh, Miletus and on past Ephesus eventually to Jerusalem. Now look at verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul Uh, Didn't really have time in his mind to make it uh, back to Ephesus at that moment. He asked the elders of the church of Ephesus to actually come to him, which they did. Look at verses 18 through 21. And when they came to him, the Ephesian elders, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, this next phrase is critical, testifying both to Jew and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to pause there because in this one phrase in verse 21, we have the only response that makes for a valid Christian testimony. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. I have for years, in the context of baptism interviews or membership interviews or other discussions, I have had people share what they have referred to as their testimony of faith. Their their conversion story. 
And I have heard all kinds of things. Most often, I've heard this. I started going to church when I was whatever age. Or I've heard this. um, I started living for God when I was 10, 11, 12, whatever it is. Or I asked Jesus into my heart when I was 11, 12, 15. Or I decided to live a better life. Or I asked God to make me happy. Whatever it is, well, none of those statements represents a Christian testimony. None of those statements represents a Christian testimony. There is no Christian testimony without repentance and faith. You can say, you can, you can say when you started going to church, that's fine. Uh, you can say that you, you had this time where you decided you're going to live for God or whatever it is. That's fine. But those aren't Christian testimonies. There's no Christian testimony without repentance and faith. And so often, repentance is viewed and taught as simply behavior change. You know, I was walking in one direction. I did an about face. It's this Hebrew word shuv. And I started working, walking in the other direction. But this is actually short-sighted. Repentance is not first behavioral. You can make all kinds of behavior changes and not be a believer. But cognitive, spiritual, volitional, and ethical. In other words, it is as much turning to as it is turning from. It involves, yes, it involves turning from sin with grief, contrition, even disgust, along with an earnest desire and effort to refrain from such sin in the future. But it also means, by God's grace, turning to the only one who, who has the power to cleanse us from sin and make us whole. And this is where faith comes in. Faith is trusting in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His death for my, uh, for my sin. Faith is recognizing that we are in desperate need of a Savior, that we fail to keep God's law, and that we are actually deserving of God's eternal wrath and separation from Him. Now, keep in mind, repentance and faith, again, though sometimes taught this way, they're not two separate things. They're, they're what many have said, two sides of the same coin. They're not even sequential necessarily. They work together. And I like the way a New Testament scholar, Daryl Bach, uh, describes it. He, he writes, repentance entails faith in Jesus. So that the turning results in one placing trust in what God did through Jesus as one embraces his person and work. Now, I would actually say, Bach may disagree, I would actually say repentance is actually the fruit of genuine faith. As we understand and recognize who Jesus is, the holiness of God, we then recognize we need a Savior. We are broken, sinful, helpless people. And so as we turn from our sin and our self-reliance, we cling only to Jesus Christ and His cross work. Now that brings us to verses 23 through 25. Uh, Paul says, and now behold, rather, verse 22 rather, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Such a critical phrase. For you original language buffs, this phrase uh, in verse um, 24 appears in what's called the genitive of content. In other words, it reads, the gospel which is the grace of God. The gospel which can be defined as or summarized as the grace of God. The grace of God, verse 24, is the central feature of the whole counsel of God, verse 27. This is Paul's most succinct summary of the entire message of Christianity. It is the grace of God which is expressed in the good news, the gospel, which is about Jesus. This is the sum and substance of the Christian faith. See, the message of Christianity is not one of moral improvement, but of a God who rescues sinners by His grace. The story of the Bible is one true story about a single theme, the grace of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. But that's not how, off, that's not how it's often perceived. That is to say, the Christian faith. If you ask anyone off the street what Christianity is fundamentally about, I can almost guarantee you that they would say something along the lines of Christianity is about living for God. It's about doing good things and not doing bad things. And of course, they have their list of what the bad things are and the good things are. It's about being a good neighbor. It's about following the way of Jesus. And certainly, there's some good in some of those statements. But at the heart of Christianity is not a message about good people becoming better or even bad people becoming good. You could use that. That's the message really of every other religion. It's not even a message about living like Jesus, fundamentally. At the heart of Christianity is the news of what God, out of His love and through His Son, has done for an undeserving people to claim them, to choose them, to redeem them, to forgive them, to bring them to Himself, and to prepare for them a place where He will live with them forever. That's the gospel of the grace of God that Paul committed his life to in verse 24. Here's our second point as it relates to the content of grace. God's grace is His one-way love lavished on undeserving sinners which can neither be earned nor lost. It's not a partnership. The gospel is not a partnership where we do our part and God does His part. It's not a work that we sort of help God with. The gospel is the good news that God rescues undeserving, helpless, hopeless sinners who are worthy of God's full and just wrath. But it is unnerving, grace is. The idea of grace is unsettling because it takes the control away from us. We're much more comfortable, let me say it even more personally, I'm much more comfortable with a formula that announces a person should get what he deserves. That makes a lot more sense to me. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. I'm a lot less comfortable with the idea that salvation is entirely and totally a gift that we only receive and can do absolutely nothing to earn. Why is it that when someone treats us to lunch, our first response 
is almost always what? I'll get the next one, right? I say it all the time. Why is it that when someone gives our kid a gift for a birthday or graduation, we then write it down and think, well, now I know how much I have to spend on their child for his or her gift or for their graduation. Have you ever done something good for someone? Maybe you've, you've, you've given a generous gift and their first response is, I'll return the favor, I promise. It's bound up in our hearts. We must repay what we've been given. We can't stand getting something for free. It just doesn't sit well with us. We are desperate to remain in control and to know at least on some level that we've contributed in some way to this result. The uh, recently deceased author and theologian uh, Robert Capon, with whom uh, I disagree on a lot of things, but he once said this, if you want to make people mad, preach law. That is, tell them what to do. If you want to make people really mad, preach grace. Tell them there's nothing they can do to earn their salvation. There's nothing they can contribute to their own salvation. He said that really ticks people off. Tell people there's no way you can ever in a billion years repay what God has done for you. I can tell you personally, that makes some people mad. It upsets people. Instead, we want, just tell me what I need to do. Just tell me what I need to do so that I can remain in control, so that I can be in charge of my own destiny. That way, when I do well, then I can expect God's blessing as something I deserve. And when I do poorly, I can brace myself for God's punishment. But don't tell me that bad people get good things because that I just can't accept. Capon said the prayers of many are like this, though they may never say it in these words. Lord, please restore to us the comfort of merit and demerit. Show us that there's at least something we can do. Tell us that at the end of the day, there will at least be one redeeming card of our very own. Lord, if it is not too much to ask, send us to bed with a few shreds of self-respect upon which we can congratulate ourselves. But whatever you do... Do not preach grace. Give us something to do, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. I shared that quote a few years ago, and and the service hadn't so much as concluded in a matter of seconds. And This woman came up to me, a sweet lady came up, and she said to me very sheepishly, but uh, in a very uh, convicted way, she said, well, what about the statement by Jesus where He says that the good servant will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your eternal rest. Doesn't that mean that those who do enough will receive Jesus' approval? I said, no. When does Jesus say that? It's actually part of three parables to show that salvation comes to those who receive Jesus as king. Those who actually renounce their own self-salvation projects. Those who realize that Jesus is actually their authority. They renounce their own authority over their lives. And they receive Jesus as Lord of the universe and the Redeemer of His people. An ability which itself is a gift of God's grace. In fact, at the end of those three parables, and I, I couldn't bring this to mind when this lady said this to me because I couldn't remember it, but as I went back and looked, Jesus says this in Matthew 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. 
You've been given this by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The Christian message is all about grace. And the better we understand that, the better we understand that everything we have is a gift that we don't deserve, the more joyful our worship becomes, the more spontaneous our obedience becomes, the deeper our love for God and neighbor become, and the more steady our peace becomes. Paul said, I want to be faithful. Look, I know my life is going to be claimed. I know I'm going to be persecuted. The Holy Spirit has made me aware I'm going to be imprisoned everywhere I go. I just want to do this one thing. I want to finish the task that God has given me to testify to the gospel of the grace of God until I die and go be with the Lord. Now look at verses 26 and following. Now this is, again, this is all in the context here of Paul's uh, words to the Ephesian elders. He says, therefore, I testify to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is these are the words to elders in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So here we have Paul saying his gospel goodbyes. And this is gut-wrenching. People are weeping. People are sobbing because they know they will not see again, Paul again. Now, at least that's what they think. That's what they believe. That's what Paul suggests to them. But we know from 1 Timothy uh, that Paul may have actually been back to Ephesus. Either way, the elders of the Ephesian church don't expect to see him, so they're heartbroken. I mean, Paul had spent three years with these people, day in and day out, having meals with them, going on journeys with them, preaching, teaching, leading the church with them. And so these deep, deep friends hate to see him go. But as he leaves, he reminds him of what he's been saying to them for three years. For the whole time, I was with you. I did not cease warning you with, you with tears. What was he warning them? To get their act together? No. He warned them that false teachers would come. Gospel distorters and grace haters would come. And we read in 1 Timothy, they did come. And what did these false teachers teach? They taught that the way a person was made right with God was by keeping the law, was by obedience to the commands of God. What they taught was that faith in Jesus was not enough. They added to the gospel Again, they were, they were grace haters. They were gospel dis distorters. And so Paul urges the elders 
to, to watch out for them. This word overseer used interchangeably for, for elders and pastors. And he says it's a word that, that in the first century context had the idea of being a protector or a guardian. He says, be alert. Care for them, verse 28, the church of God over which the Holy Spirit has made you to be overseer. So what is Paul getting at? Here's our final point as it relates to the insurance of grace. The central task of the church's elders is to ensure that the grace of God is the resounding song of every ministry. God has given the church, every local church, elders, plural. Capshaw has eight elders, some of the most gifted and humble and godly men that I've ever been around. He's given the church elders, and and I'm one of those elders, and we are commanded to do a lot of things as part of our Holy Spirit-granted responsibility to lead, feed, know, and protect the flock. But there is no greater responsibility for the elders than to make sure that the gospel is never perverted, diluted, distorted, or set aside in favor of, quote, deeper things, but instead proclaimed rightly week in and week out. Because our natural tendency is, my natural tendency is to want law, rules, commands. Just tell me what I need to do. So we as elders must constantly be alert to that tendency in our own hearts and the tendency in our church to give people what they want, law, instead of what they need, grace. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we gloss over the commands. It doesn't mean that we make light of of obedience or holiness. Absolutely not. But what we understand is that what motivates sustained obedience is the glorious, matchless, counterintuitive, amazing grace of God expressed in His loving act of sending His Son to redeem a broken world. Now, some of you might be saying, I thought you've said over and over and over and over that that what you want to do is preach Christ to us every week. But now you're saying, you want to give us grace every week. Well, it's a great question. I can't answer it any better than Dennis Johnson, who says this, Preaching Christ is preaching grace. Preaching Christ, as Paul preached Christ, is preaching grace as the sole source and rationale of salvation and transformation from start to finish. Grace that imparts life to the spiritually dead. Grace that imputes Christ's righteousness to the guilty. Grace that instills the Spirit's power in those otherwise impotent to want or do anything good. Grace that holds people fat, holds fast the feeble and fainting securing pilgrims' arrival at their destination in glory. Grace points hearers to the sovereign, saving initiative and intervention of God to do for the guilty and paralyzed sinners what we can never do for ourselves, not even with heavenly help. So here's what I want you to know at the, as, as a result of this sermon, and here's what I and the elders want you to know every week. It's the same thing that Paul said he would testify until his death. God loves you, not because of anything you've done, but actually in spite of everything you've done against Him. God chose you, not because of any good He saw in you, but because He Himself is good. You stand completely and totally forgiven by God in Christ, not because you deserve it, but because God is merciful and has sent His Son to pay for your sins right now. God sees you as one who has never, ever sinned. Not because you've been perfectly obedient, far from it. 
but because Jesus was perfectly obedient in your place and His righteousness is yours by faith. And you have a future that is far more glorious than anything you can ever imagine. Not because you've secured it by your works, but because Jesus promised it and guaranteed it by His sinless life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy on us today and give us the grace to believe that salvation is totally a gift from you. And help us, Lord, to revel in it. Help us to rest in it. Help us to have as our single confidence Christ on our behalf, the glorious grace of God, by which you would send your only Son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised again as the first of many to come. And Father, I pray that you would help us not only to hear it, but to believe it. Not only to accept it, but to rest in it. Encourage our souls this morning with your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.